Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Lord, it's good enough for me. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to what I think will be a happy experience for all, because tonight the Johnny Cash Show makes a joyful noise. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and as always, I'm joined by my podcasting partner, uh, my co-founder here at The Pillar, editor who lives in D.C. You're not really our D.C. editor, you're just The Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Hello, Ed. Uh, hi. Hi, J.D. Why do, why do you, you know, once, once there was a time when we had a job where you were the D.C. editor of a news agency, which I ran, and you therefore lived in D.C., why do you still live there, Ed? Um... That's an interesting point. Uh, it's a question my wife and I have debated on a number of occasions. I guess the the the, the reason that I still live in D.C. is because it is not practical to move anywhere else that I would immediately wish to or my wife would immediately wish to. And we can't agree on a lower cost place to live, I think mm. is probably the the right answer. I mean, to to live near my family... Or my wife's family would involve moving to the urban sprawl or downtown area of cities that are more expensive than Washington. Our cost of living would go up. And, and we are no longer young, but we are still hungry men making our living from, um, you know, effectively. A, what, what, you and me, you mean? Yeah. We are, you know, we're we're scrabbling here. We're trying to build something. and uh, We are trying not, to build something. I'm not looking to, to up my cost of living significantly. I would like to move out into the middle of what I call nowhere and have no neighbors and, you know. Yeah. Have you ever considered Arkansas? I feel like rural Arkansas would be where it's at for you. I haven't considered Arkansas specifically. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exclude it as a possibility. I mean, there, there are places to go with which I am more familiar that are nearer. And I would imagine for comparable cost if you're really in the middle of nowhere, but my wife is a city girl and she does not. Um, she's not okay with this idea. She will. She she keeps asking me ridiculous questions that I think are redundant. Like you know, well, who would our friends be? To which I respond, we don't have friends now. You know, <laughs> where, where would we go when we went out? And we don't go out. What are you talking about? And it's like, well, what if I wanted to go to the theater? It's like, you've been to the theater since the late '90s. What are you talking about? You know, we don't we don't go to movies anymore since we had the baby. We don't. We you know we go out to dinner maybe once or twice a year. And we always go to the same place, which is around the corner and is not expensive or you know highfalutin in any respect. We we don't have friends. We don't see people. We don't go out. People don't come to us. Like, why can't I have a farm? Why can't I live the same life we're living now, but surrounded by acreage so that I don't have to see anyone? I mean, living, it makes perfect way, sense to me. Living the same life we're living now, but surrounded by acreage, would not be having a farm. Like, that would be living in the country, but... I don't imagine you're going to want to do – I mean, I'm going to be honest. I don't see you following through on doing farm chores. Like if you move to a farm place, I don't see you going out in the morning with an axe to break up the water from the horse trough or what have you when there's ice. Oh, mini moose face. I love a good I, – I love outside work. I, you do for a little while. I know. Yeah. I think you would really like being having a farm for a little bit. Well, no. I mean in my, in my perfect setup, I would buy a – I would buy a – Let's hear it. I would buy a, a literal farm. In fact, there is one that's going on a foreclosure sale in in the part of the world that I would like to have a farm in. Um, and I, I mean, I'm not suggesting that I would take over the personal day to day management of a 60 acre farm, for example. And I would myself um, plow and drill and you know what and uh, fertilize the fields and and bring in the harvest from a large-ish, medium-sized plot of land like that. I mean, I, I don't, and I don't have the know-how. But I would farm some of the acreage myself. Um, and I think I would, you know, for the limited number of crops and animals that I would like to feed my myself and my family, I, 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 small, holding, small holding appeals to me, and the outdoor work appeals to me. And what I would do for the remaining acreage is I would basically, for the dollar amount of the property taxes on the farm a year, I would basically let the neighboring farm farm it and keep oh, the I proceeds. See. I see. So it would be okay. it would be effective land management. It would continue to to make sure that the crops were coming in and, and all of that. I would have 
what I really want out of this, which is the ability to grow my own meat in my backyard and to have a sufficient buffer zone between me and the rest of the world that I never have to see anyone if I don't want to. Uh, and they can't see me, which is also important. I mean, everyone's a winner here, but my wife is a city girl, so she gets slightly agoraphobic if she sees, you know, horizons. And this isn't where I meant to take this conversation, but I will. Um, don't you think, though, that – I mean, I appreciate what you're saying, and it sounds very idyllic, and it sounds very lovely, and all of these things, and, and all of that. But don't you think there is a way in which Christianity is, in particular, an urban religion? Oh, sort of without constitutively. Without question. One of the better books – if you're looking for um, – if you're looking for a, a book on the sort of the, the spread of Christianity in the early days and throughout the Roman Empire, um, I'm trying to think of the title now. It's right on the tip of my tongue. In fact, I should be able to see it from where I'm sitting. Maybe it's in the other. I think it's called From Barbarism to Christianity or something. Uh, I will I will fact check that later and put it in the show notes if I'm wrong. Uh, but anyway, it's it is true. I mean, Christianity spread and is is sort of in its essential DNA, um, an urban religion, which is a shame because when you talk about sort of the, <laughs> when you talk about the the spread of Christianity and and the sort of the era of sort of the ascent of what we would now call Christendom, uh, you had you know the great saints like um, Hillary and. All, and Augustine and all that stuff and you know um in, in the sort of urban centers of of the Roman Empire and its and its immediate successors paganism was still rife in in the countryside in places like France and Spain and certainly Britain and Germany and things like that and so you constantly had to have the heroic saints going out into the countryside to you know cut down the sacred poles and bust up the altars and try and bring Christ to to the the country. I mean, it was a Christian phrase. It was a Christian catchphrase to say "utmos rusticorum habit," you know, mm-hmm. as as is the way among the country people. Is in like, right. well, they are they are backwards, devil worshiping tree people, and you know what, JD, people who don't live in the city need Jesus too. And if I need to go be a light in the cornfield. Is that your plan, though? I mean, honestly, it did not sound to me like the description of your country life was that you would have a sort of uh, a sort of a cornfield apostolate of a little cornfield lyceum of Christian discipleship well, you're aware there. Of, you're aware that I'm a social person when I go out to my, my particular favorite parts of the American countryside that I, I, ha- I have a dive bar I go to. That's true. I, That's I, true. I, I greet people um, in the street and respond to greetings in the street. I I would absolutely proclaim the love of God to and for these people and, and so to the best you of my want to be, to manifest Christ. You want to be like a missionary ad pagani. So pagan, you know, the word pagan is also a kind of cu- cu- a word who, whose etymology suggests a country person or a rustic person. Yes. And so you, you wish to go out and be a missionary to the, to the pagans of the, of the rustic, the rustic world. Those are, those are the people that, that speak to my heart, JD. Okay. There are a lot of Amish out there. I could help. Mm. I could, you know, you know, I think an apostolate to the Amish would be actually quite a thing. Um, a missionary apostolate to the Amish would be would be quite a thing. I, yeah. If you if you, I suspect that if you convert an Amish, you get a um, you got to get a gold star for that, right? Well, I'm trying to think like you probably get a Benemerenti medal from the Holy See or the Ed, or at Ed least a nice table <laughs> or a quilt. No, because what if you convert them and they stop doing this stuff? You know, they're like, oh well, cool. Now we belong to a religion that lets us. Not no, we believe things. that there's a fighting chance of salvation. I don't have to quilt so much anymore. Right, that's exactly right. I mean, <laughs> you could end up cutting off your, you know, cutting off your quilt to spite your face there. Or, or no, but you want to. I mean, this is the other thing: is you want to live near the Amish if you possibly can and have a farm because, you know, the, let's be honest, JD. We can look around. The world is going to hell in a handcar here, and um, when when the big smash happens, the Amish won't even notice. Keep their, their theology's all messed up, but the, you know, no electricity, no functioning currency, no no fuel, no. They're not even going to notice. I don't anticipate a, a a big crash, but I suppose if you did anticipate a big crash, that would probably be the case, huh? I'm saying the best possible social insurance policy you can have in the continental United States is to live near the Amish. Okay, because you if heard it, it here all first. goes base over apex. They're gonna they're gonna be fine. You you have heard it here first, folks. The best possible social insurance policy is to live near the Amish in anticipation of the day when it goes, as Ed would say, base over apex. Now, Edward, we have probably some news we ought to talk about. But first, I mean, I would like to hear how your Lent is going. How, and I'd like to hear about your Lent. How is your Lent? Uh, my Lent is going all right. I, I, have, I have kept to 
many of the of the observances to which I, uh, I sort of set for myself. I, I'm doing all right. I'd, I'd give myself a. I'm having a B, B plus Lent. I, I would say in in terms of fasting absence. But I mean, the interesting thing is, and I was I was talking about with some, this with someone on I think it was Wednesday evening, um, that I tend to misunderstand the theology of fasting, or at least fail to appreciate its fullness. Because, you know, there's uh, the, the temptation always with fasting, especially during Lent, is to treat it as a sort of a Pelagian exercise that, you know, you're going to you're gonna deny yourself and show your strength. And, you know, this is about self-mastery. And, you know, sure, there's an aspect of self-mastery to it. But the guy I was talking to was explaining to me and saying that, you know, well, of course, Christ fasted in the desert, and that wasn't about self-mastery for him, that, you know, the 40 days in the desert that you know lent is very much focused on mirroring um that that had nothing to do with christ sort of you know getting a grip on himself he was god he was you know and it wasn't even about um leaving himself open to the holy spirit which is another thing we we often speak about trying to do through our lenten observances because of course christ was not separated from his triune godliness uh even even while incarnate on earth and the thing he said is, you know, the the act of fasting in the desert for Christ was an act of radical abandonment and trust in the love and plan of the Father. That the rejection of the temptations in the desert is the rejection of supporting ourself, the 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 false idol of being in control of our own lives and destiny. You know, living as if providence wasn't a real thing, and I found that really helpful because, you know, I we've we've talked before on this and other shows about. You know, sometimes having a bit of a disordered attitude towards work and working hours and, uh, you know, feeling like we've got to keep the wheel turning at all times and, and hopefully make this thing that we're doing some kind of success by whatever metric we choose to apply. Um, but really to treat Lent as a time, not so much as, you know, me giving myself a good talking to and trying to impress God, but to say, no, Lent is really about preparing for Easter in the best possible way, which is to dispose myself and train myself habitually to to live in the reality of providence and to acknowledge, as you should in Lent, that living in a knowledge of providence, living in a trust in the plan of the Father is, is Lenten, and it does run through the cross, that that is Christ's experience of the plan of the Father that goes through the cross, but to see that that is not anything other than the door to the resurrection. So I, yeah, that's how my lens going, JT. That's what I've been thinking about. How about you? Oh, I didn't think you were going to ask me that. Fine. Uh, fine. Uh, no, I, I know when you're setting me up because you got something you want to say. I've no, I really, it's only taken truly four don't. years of this. No, I really and truly don't. I really didn't have anything to say. And you've said something that I think is insightful and meaningful and useful. And I'm going to let people uh, have and chew on it. My lens is going uh, just fine. Plus I think it's time for us to be right back after this word from our sponsor. Really? No. Okay. Well, while we're on the subject, I can, I've, I've identified the book I was talking about earlier on my show. I knew you had. The part of the reason why I wasn't going to weigh in is because you have been bouncing around like a, a, like a ping pong ball in a ping pong ball bouncing pit over there. You've been bouncing is. around like a, like a, well, you've been bouncing around a great deal and uh, it's cl- clearly trying to see your bookshelf and it's been very honestly a bit of a distraction to me, but it oh, seems to be a bit of a distraction to you as well. So uh, what is it that you now have to say? It is, it is actually called The Barbarian Conversion. The Barbarian Conversion. Who is the author of this book? Uh, Richard Fletcher. Richard Fletcher. Okay, great. Good book. Good. Okay, great. So we'll put that in the show notes as well for those who want to. Tom Holland's Dominion is also fabulous. I read that last summer and I really enjoyed it. Great. Okay, what are you good. reading nowadays, JD? What am I reading nowadays? Yeah. Oh, I just finished. I just finished yet two days ago, actually, a really, really great book called Black Hearts, which I think I told you about. Black Hearts is the story. It was recommended to me by a reader and listener of the show. Um, Black Hearts is um, the story of one platoon in Iraq in 2006, which, as it were, breaks bad, which um, uh, ends up committing, which ends up sort of falling into dysfunction and then committing a number of atrocious war crimes. And you might say to yourself, for God's sake, man, why would you read that? Fair question. Uh, again, it was recommended to me by a reader and a listener. And the reason it was recommended to me by a reader and a listener is because um, Black Hearts is a story in the failures of leadership, in institutional failures of leadership at a variety of levels that led to 
yeah, the commission of war crimes, I mean, profound and heinous war crimes, that any anyone involved would have expected they would not have done, probably, or those who sort of facilitated, enabled, or covered it up would have expected that they would never have facilitated, enabled, and covered it up. So it's effectively a study in how is it that these atrocious things happened in an institution which is designed for and missioned for doing things which it believes are good. Uh, you might see why I would find that interesting. Effectively, it sort of categorizes various kinds of leadership types and both their successes and their failures and the way in which, in some cases, good leaders were kind of institutionally stymied from doing the right things, whereas bad leaders were kind of institutionally rewarded for doing effectively the wrong things. And then the sort of incumbent consequences on that, both upon, in this case, the Iraqi people and also upon the soldiers themselves and then kind of the um, long-term sort of mission failure that that um, that that helped to enable. It was really, really, I mean, a, a dark and kind of a heavy read. I, um, um, the other thing, the other thing that I'm reading is, um, uh, did you ever read Maria von Trapp's memoir? As in like the sound of music? Yeah. Did you ever read the book that Maria von Trapp, von Trapp wrote that became the, the sound of music? No. I mean, curtains for overalls. Right. Exactly. Singing well, anyway. goats. It's not, it's not my thing. The children really like the sound of music, so our bedtime reading is is the Von Trapp family singers. I, I can't remember the name of the memoir, but it's our bedtime reading. And actually, it's, I'm finding it quite engaging. And one of the things that I find most interesting about it is that Marie Van, Von Trapp, which you get from the movie but you don't really get, is a person of deep spirituality and faith. So that was um, giving me a question is how much of the – I mean, my only experience of this is the Julie Andrews. Film. Right. So, I mean, is that is that reasonably – like, is that in the ballpark of no. real life? No, I mean there are. All I want to know, JD, is is this is this actually about an Austrian naval captain who married a, a postulant out of a convent? Did he yes. marry the babysitter who's a postulant out of the convent? Yes. Okay, um, you're going to have a mountain so... to climb then to get me on board. But this is a <laughs> just I mean, saying. So it does. So the sound of music, the movie, does bear sort of certain similarities to certain elements of the real thing, but. Uh, it really, if you sort of start reading the Von Trapps, you realize like, well, this doesn't really bear bear deep enough resemblance to their family life, especially because it simply doesn't reflect the extent to which the faith was the animating principle of their lives. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Married the babysitter. Just saying. <laughs> she actually wasn't a babysitter. She was. Uh, she was brought there uh, not to be a babysitter, but to be. Um, uh, it is true that she had a lot of trouble in the convent. I mean, she was a problem like Maria, so to speak, that was sort of unsolvable uh, in, in in the monastery. But she was brought there to be the tutor of the, the sort of tutor of a, a sickly child who had something like scarlet fever or something who was unable to sort of play and, and attend school with the rest of the children. Um, so governess became a kind of um, a, a quick and easy sort of a film license, a piece of license in the film that enabled her to have to, to more quickly have a relationship with the rest of the children than it actually was the case in the actual the actual experience of the Von Trapps. Right. It wasn't love at first sight. She had to really work hard at it to get that boss man. Well, truth be told, for Captain Von Trapp, it was even perhaps much more love at first sight than the movie indicates. Okay. We're going to have to move on soon because I'm but, about know, to say something. I don't know the Von Trapps, and I'm sure they're lovely they're people, people, but I'm about Captain to say Von some Trapp, very... You know what things. he was. You know what he was. Ed was a submarine hero. Yes, he was a hero. He was a U-boat captain. Captain von Trapp was for the Austro-Hungarian Empire a submarine hero. Is that fair? He was a hero to his country vis-a-vis -vis his early mastery of submarine technology. Now you might say, okay, but from the perspective of the did United he, what Kingdom, what did he do Britain, to merit the hero? Did he sink the Lusitania? Like what did he? He did sink some British merchant ships. Oh, and whatnot. But so you might say, okay, but marries okay, but, the babysitter and sinks civilian ships. What a legend! <laughs> wow, <laughs> definitely. But you know, Captain Von Trapp didn't take a commission. To his credit, Captain Von Trapp, uh, you know, didn't take a commission in the Nazi Navy, despite their their urging that he do so. That I suppose that's. I, I refusing to cooperate with the Nazis of, is not a, is not an act of heroic virtue. I like to think it's a baseline <laughs> of human decency. But okay. All right. Well, um, let's see here. We have just a couple of minutes here before it actually is time for the break. Um, so there are a couple. Of, there are a number of things in the news right now, but I know that you are just bursting too. So I want to start with it. There are a number of things in the kind of news that we cover here at the Pillar 
but I want to give you the opportunity because you are just bursting to talk about the uh, the lawsuit of Libero Maloney and the uh, Holy See. All right. Well, I oh, gosh, it it hadn't occurred to me that we we're going to talk about that this week. But yeah, so this week we we reported we got a hold of the judicial decision um, issued by the three judge panel in Vatican City in the hearings for the 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 attempt by Libero Maloney, the former Auditor General of, Vatic- of the Vatican, um, to bring a wrongful dismissal lawsuit against the Secretary of State and his own former office, the Office of the Auditor General. Um, this is a process in which the, the Vatican's public prosecutor, the, promoter, the Office of the Promoter of Justice, have decided to weigh in and declare a public interest. And so they're sort of a third party to Maloney's attempt to sue the Vatican for... Um, how he was turfed out of office in 2017 when Cardinal Angelo Becciu and the then uh, chief of the Vatican Corps of Gendarmes, uh, both of whom Maloney has indicated he had some some fairly interesting information regarding their financial affairs and perhaps abuse of office, uh, basically called him into an office, read him the riot act, screamed at him, shouted at him, berated him. This is according to Maloney's narrative of the thing, uh, and forced his resignation under threat of prosecution for quote unquote spying on them. Um, so since then, he since he was fired along with his deputy uh, in 2017, he's been trying to get compensation for, you know, the balance of his contract, as well as for the loss of his reputation, which has hampered his efforts to get another job. Um, the Vatican initially were not looking like they were going to allow this lawsuit to go forward. The uh, the court sort of looked askance at it when it was first filed. The prosecutors have indicated they will reopen a, a, they have reopened a criminal investigation into Maloney's time in office, basically doubling down on the threat of if you continue to try and make known to people that you found corruption in your work as an anti-corruption inspector, uh, we will we will pursue criminal charges against you. And the signs were good, but this week what happened was the um, the court of Vatican City. Uh, rejected wholesale all of the arguments of the Office of the Auditor General and the Secretary of State, arguing that Maloney's suit should not be allowed to go forward, and uh, tossed them all out, said, no, this is absolutely our case. There's absolutely standing here. This is absolutely the correct forum. He's provided more than enough um, initial evidence to allow this to go to a hearing and and for us to to have a a proper trial hearing of, of this lawsuit. So that was good. I mean... The funny thing is, though, since he first filed the suit in November and the first hearing in January, um, he has, of course, deposited 500 pages of evidence, which he says, I don't know, I haven't seen it, um, but he says, and he said this quite publicly, prove systematic corruption, financial corruption at the highest levels of the Holy See, and that this is, he says, why he was thrown out. It was because he was too good at his job. And the sense I get talking to people close to the trial and the Vatican's Secretary of State is now that these have been deposited with the court and the concerned parties have had the opportunity to read them at some length, uh, people have worked out he's not kidding. And people are freaking out a little bit and deciding that, you know, they're going to have to deal with Maloney because not only might he win his lawsuit, which he's asking, he and his former deputy are asking a total of, I think, 9 million euros or something. Um, but if he does make all of his information public, it could be, and the word one guy I talked to said was used was catastrophic in a way that previous and ongoing financial scandals at the Vatican have not even come close to approaching. How? How How will that be? How? how? What will be the catastrophe? Well, the catastrophe would be that it would be, um, as, a, as I've understood it, that this would demonstrate... Um, personal and venial corruption to such a degree across the Holy See that there would basically be no good guys. That it wouldn't be a question of, oh, well, you know, there's two, three or four bad actors or there was this problem in this sort of network of guys. Like, no, there are no heroes here. Everybody is tainted. Everybody's going to lose somebody that they, they love if this all comes out. That it's going to show um, basically the entire curial class um, at the time, as in one way or another, treating with contempt any notion of financial propriety or regulation, and doing things like, as we reported previously, with, um, Bellarita, Archbishop Vincenzo Pali, as sort of you know taking taking funds intended for a charitable purpose and doing up your apartment, 
Um, this sort of stuff I have been told is, uh, is not uncommon or at least wasn't uncommon in 2017 when Melanie was looking into it. And that's at the sort of, you know, less sticky end of the sort of stuff that could come out. So I don't know. I, you know, I talked to a lot of people and everyone seems to think that there's got to be a settlement because what they don't want is um, a result in the trial. Because if Maloney wins in court and the judges effectively say, yes, you were constructively dismissed by being coerced from your office for doing it too well by officers of the Vatican state. That's kind of a big deal and, you know, is going to trigger a whole other round of criminal charges and another big trial and everything else. And most of the stuff that Maloney is using in court under the seal at the moment to substantiate his um, claims of wrongful dismissal would then probably have to be used in evidence in open court in a criminal trial of all these four officials. So they, you know, that's, that's not that's what wants. risk there. Exactly. So it's not yeah. like the secretary of state is like, well, we want to make Maloney happy. So he doesn't go to the press and give them all these documents. So we'll just throw the trial, his lawsuit. We'll just throw it and say, you know, we'll, we'll lay down and you can win. That's not an option for that reason. On the other hand, they can't like go to him sideways and say, well, we'll just give you all of the compensation you've been asking for, for, you know, the last five years. And we've been ignoring you and shutting you out. We're ready to deal. You know, we'll write you a check. What do you need? What do you, what do you need to get whole here? We'll do right. that. Because if they do that, one, Libro Maloney doesn't get his reputation back. Mm-hmm. He just gets compensation. And yeah. two, it would look to everyone like what it was, which is they bought him off because he'd put a gun to their head. Right. And that doesn't do anything for the, the Vatican's attempts at clawing up back some reputation for financial probity in its institutions. And it would probably, you know, get people at Moneyball looking at it pretty long and hard. So that's not an option. So... What it sounds like everyone is agreeing is whatever happens now, it's got to be blessed by the court. It's got to be a product of the ongoing legal process. Mm -hmm. But they need a situation where everybody can sort of save some face. Maloney gets some compensation and an apology Mm -hmm. and his life back, basically. Say, you know, he needs to get something from the Vatican says, you're right, you're owed here. And also, you're right, you were just doing your job. And, you know, we're sorry that we threatened to throw you in jail for espionage. You were just being an auditor. We apologize. <laughs> That's what he needs. The secretary of state needs to be able to walk away and say, well, no one did anything criminal here. There was no malicious intent. There's no need for anyone to face criminal charges. And there's no need for international investigations by financial authorities or money laundering watchdogs or anything like that. Nothing to see here. Um, it was all just a sort of misunderstanding, you know, that, uh, this this Maloney guy came in and he was using all of these highfalutin international standards and you know going at it in a in a really strong and impressive way, but nobody in the Vatican knew what he was up to because mm-hmm. it was all so new. We were so unused to these you know proper ways of doing things that you know people got a little freaked out, misunderstood, misinterpreted. It was all all a mistake, and they get to walk away with that, and maybe they give Maloney less than the full nine million he's asking. You know, they, he takes a little less. And then everybody gets to walk away and say, you know, nobody got hurt. It's it's fine. We're all fine now, okay? Um, so that seems to be where things are going. I mean, of course, the reality is um, somebody did get hurt. Fenuccio Panico, Maloney's deputy, is part of the reason he's asking sick. so much. He's quite sick. Is he's got stage four cancer. Yeah. Um, cancer that was in the process of being diagnosed and treated when he was in office. And then when they kicked him out with, along with Maloney in 2017, they took all his medical records from his Vatican says, office, he says, yes, um, took all his medical records from his Vatican office because he was receiving treatment in a Vatican medical facility. Uh, he never got them back. So he had to start the whole diagnostic process all over again and basically lost two years of diagnosis and treatment for cancer that is now by all accounts killing him. Um, mm-hmm. So somebody did get hurt in all of this, but that, that seems to what's going on. And uh, I thank you for, for giving me this opportunity to talk about it. Sure. We're not going to continue talking about it after the break, but we will be, (laughs) but we will be right back. Edward, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is sponsored by Decided Excellence Catholic Media. As you probably know, if you've been listening to this show, Decided Excellence Catholic Media is a print media company that specializes in community and parish magazines. You know, there are parishes all over this country, which 
have partnered with Decided Excellence Catholic Media to publish their own parish magazine. And I'm told that parishioners love them. These magazines and parishes aim to communicate the good works of the parish to strengthen community. And this is really quite cool. Uh, Decided Excellence says that these magazines have even brought parishioners back to Mass. That is very cool. And, of course, there are a number of things that a parish magazine, a physical parish magazine, can do uh, that a a bulletin or a social media presence can't. Um, A mailed magazine can hit 100% of a parish's registered parishioners, not just the ones who attend Mass or remember to grab a bulletin or follow the parish's social media accounts or whatever. Um, And, of course, it can also reach non-registered and non-practicing Catholics who live in the parish boundaries, and it can invite them back into parish life, that it can be, in this way, a, a tool of evangelization. And, you know, it's physical media. You don't have to worry about it getting lost in the social media algorithm or, you know, worry about the message needing to be, you know, tailor-made to fit in a tweet or a Facebook post or whatever else. And how it works is that each magazine features a family from the parish. Um, it can highlight a particular parish ministry. And the parish can produce its own evangelical and catechetical content. But if they want, they can also supplement it. Decided Excellence have this library of articles from people like Bishop Barron, Scott Hahn, Relevant Radio... And then there's an editorial and design team to guide the parish through the publication process each month so that the thing looks, you know, Yeah, and it's really, I mean, it's really, um, the parish team um, gets trained, even one representative from the parish can be trained to organize and provide some content, but then that all gets sent off to a staff of professional designers and editors at Decided Excellence. So for parishes, it's kind of a turnkey way to produce something which is uh, of high quality, aesthetically pleasing, and um, uh, attractive and intended for um, both practicing Catholics and um, non-practicing parishioners. If you want to learn more about Decided Excellence Catholic Media and what it can do at your parish, go to decidedexcellence.com slash parish, parish, decidedexcellence.com slash parish to learn more. Um, listen, talk to uh, your pastor, talk to the people in your parish, and check out decidedexcellence.com slash parish to find out if uh, this is the right solution for you, which I think it probably is because these people are cool enough to sponsor the Pillar Podcast, so they're obviously doing something awesome. It's decided. Excellent. If that's not their tagline, hey, everybody, welcome back to the Pillar Podcast. If their tagline isn't, it's decided, period, excellent, it really should be. I mean, I don't I don't want to tell these people how to do their job, but I, too, am in the business of Catholic media, and I think that that would be a winner. We've pitched a lot of ideas to other organizations over the years, sort of free gratis and for nothing. Like, do you ever, what was the, oh, I remember, it was when Kamala Harris was, um, beaten up on a bunch of judicial nominations uh, for being members of the Knights of Columbus and calling them like an extremist. We like we pitched someone at the Knights of Columbus over beers one night. We're like, you know what you should do? You should make like T-shirts that have she pictures of Father McGivney. She was calling them extremists, right? Or yeah. something you like that. You should that, have yeah. pictures like T-shirts with like Father McGivney and other, uh, you know, famous Knights of Columbus, like extremist on it. Or things yeah. like, like extreme uh, charity and stuff like that. I don't know why the Knights of Well, I do know why the Knights of Columbus didn't do that. But the Knights of Columbus should have done that because it was a really good idea. And I think it would have been great branding for them. It would have been great. I tell you what, you would have seen college campus ministries like go through the roof if they had, you know. Teachers, yeah. like extreme charity, extreme you know, Knights of Columbus and extremist organization, Senator Kamala Harris. Yeah. And you know what? I'd like like not only um, a picture of McGivney that says extremist, but I'd like a pic- I'd like a T-shirt that has a picture of like three beer gut grandpas, like collecting money to give, you know, outside the grocery store to give to disabled kids wearing their sashes. And underneath that, it says extremist. Like, I feel like that. Yeah, that would play super, super well among the Utes and uh, would take off as a sort of real life analog meme because it would just, I, I don't know. I feel like people would really yeah. lean into that branding and really do well with it. Well, the moment's passed now. Anyway, I have other things. I have other questions, JD, I would like to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. I actually have been wanting to talk about this for a while on the show or in real life. And I can't talk to you about it in real life because we keep saying, oh no, this would be good for the show. So save for the show. But here's the thing you have in the last month, Tried on a couple of occasions to, as you keep saying, assign me a story, which, you know, I I take it in the in the spirit, I, which I assume you mean. But it's it, my right? job title. What is the job title upon which we decided I should have when we launched this project? Yeah, but it's it's sort of an honorary thing. My job title is editor-in-chief, right? That means that it is my job to assign you to work and then <laughs> ensure that you've completed that work. As a business, we're business partners. When it comes to the production of news, I have a responsibility for this newsroom. And I think that I've offered to you a rotating editor-in-chief ship. And should you become the editor-in-chief, I will 
submit myself to your leadership. But <laughs> in the interim, I would expect the same courtesy from you. I thought we just agreed that you could have the title because you did better with people emailing you. But okay. Oh, um, I thought I honestly thought it was because I'm a better copy editor. Oh no, that's not true. <laughs> that's absolutely not true. You're after you me. after you copy edit my newsletters, I have to go over it twice to move out the typos that you've inserted no, in. No, you just you and your <sighs> hyperlinks are absolute trash. They begin halfway through <laughs> words, and that might uh, be true. But grammarian, would we agree that I'm a better English grammarian? I would agree that you you consider yourself to be a stickler for grammar. <laughs> I am suggesting that your 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 admittedly like high standards peeve, of grammar. My biggest pet peeve around my biggest pet peeves around here have to do with your dangling modifiers and, and you mixed your metaphors in a thing yesterday that I had to pick up on. You were talking about uh, you know. I didn't know that though. I mean, I accepted that I mixed the metaphors, but I didn't know that I had. Well, you said you can't. You said you can't deepen a fracture, or you can't. Um, yeah, because a fracture cuts right the way through. You can't go and, deeper. Once a thing is fractured, and, it's and broken in half. And, so and I accepted deepen that. a and thing. Look, that's I was already... wrong about what was the thing that I was. I was wrong about fraud. Everybody in the world has written to me to tell me I was wrong about fraud. <laughs> we're doing. We're, no, hang on. I want to talk about the thing. I was I want to wrong talk about. about fraud. Everybody. I mean, not wrong, but I accept the contemporary American usage of fraud, even if it's erroneous. I was not wrong about fraud. I may have been ins- unduly insistent about fraud, but I can't do it. I can't say that two plus two equals five, and I can't say that I was wrong about fraud. We're, we're not going to have that conversation yet. But okay. what I would like to talk to you about is this. You have, in the last few weeks, tried several times to get me to take up a, a story to report on revivals of one kind or another happening in one or other place in the United States. I have assigned you stories, but you've kind of wriggled out of them, yeah. Not so much wriggled out of them. I said, I don't know anything about this. And, I'm and not... I've said, that's what makes you a good reporter for it. Go out and learn. I don't want to because it makes me feel – I'm weirded out by this stuff and I realize that I shouldn't be. And I know that you're not weirded out by this stuff. In fact, you, you I imagine, have some sort of – some kind of experience or proximity to these things in your rich and varied life. And and so I would like you to just be my Virgil for a few minutes. Okay. And, 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 because here's the the thing. Hold on. Time out. We are coming back. Put a pin in that. Virgil was a very unusual professional wrestler in the, in the mid 90s. Um, He started out, I think, as a sort of bag man for the million dollar man, Ted TiBiase, but the, Ted TiBiase, but then he sort of had his own career where he was never, he, he, he was never a superstar. But he was always sort of in proximity to the superstars. He was never really – I doubt he was ever even the intercontinental champion. But he was always sort of on the cusp of greatness and never getting there. What, what do you make of that? I don't know. But did you know that Ted DiBiase is now an evangelical pastor? I'm not surprised. Yeah. The Million yeah, Dollar Man the is million my dollar man. I'm not surprised. Claiming souls for Christ. And still wearing a Rolex, I would imagine. Um, but on that subject, speaking of American evangel- evangelicalism – Evangel, not evangel, not evangelism. Evangelicalism is that a thing? Is that a word? Yeah, but I'm not sure that evangelicalism means what you think it means. Okay. I, do, I know it doesn't, but this is my point. Is I, so I, I lived in a very north side Chicago parish for the first like nine Blazed years of my Irish. life. Yeah. Um, for the first nine years of my life, I'm not right. We're not going to debate Chicago geography right now. Um, anyway, and then. You know, I I lived in the UK. I have no experience of of the of whole swaths of American Catholicism and Christianity. I don't know what the vocabulary means. I I it, honestly, it's a gigantic blind spot for me. And I say this periodically to people, like I don't actually know what that means, and they kind of laugh, like you know, ha ha ha, you're you know having it. So good. I I honestly don't know what any of this stuff is. So I would like you to just please walk me through this. I'm going to ask you. Let, let's just start with this. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some words that I don't know what they mean beyond their dictionary definition, and I would just like you to please speak to me like a reasonably attentive five year old. Okay. And spell this I out. I have a me. reasonably attentive five year old, so I probably yeah. am equipped for that. Okay, go ahead. Okay. What is a revival? <sighs> That's a great question. Um, a revival can mean something akin to a kind of preached period of Christian fervor and invitation towards discipleship in the model of sort of Wesleyan holiness. So, so you sort of think, 
Yeah, so much of what we're talking about has roots in Methodism and sort of Wesleyanism. And, and obviously there are contemporary Methodists who distance themselves from John Wesley and contemporary disciples of John Wesley who distance themselves from like the UMC, for goodness sake. But um, but on the whole, um, a revival can be used to refer to a kind of preached multi-day or multi-period invitation to Christian discipleship. Um, or it can refer to something which outpours from that, which is seemingly the movement of the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of certain gifts of the Holy Spirit in some corporate religious setting. By okay. which I I don't mean like religion, Inc. I mean a group of people who are aggregated together for a religious purpose. Okay. When you say certain outpourings of the Holy Spirit and certain gifts, what does that mean? Okay. I think it's time for us to talk about Azusa Street. About what? Do you know what the Azusa revival is, Ed? No. Okay, well, I think it's time for us to talk about Azusa Street. Okay, okay, good. I like to talk about Azusa Street. Okay, so picture this. It's Los Angeles, California, uh, around the turn of the 20th century, and a pastor named William Seymour, uh, a black pastor of the AME, begins to host a series of gatherings for charismatic preaching and hymn singing. Okay, that's what I, I like so, charismatic preaching. So charismatic preaching is the notion of a, a preaching which calls people, which proclaims the sort of basic gospel message that um, God became man to redeem sinners through his death, resurrect, you know, through his passion. The good news is defined by St. Paul. Good news, right. Yeah. And uh, and so William Seymour, Seymour began hosting these sort of evening services for hymn singing and charismatic preaching. In the context of those evenings... When you say in the context of those evenings, you mean during those, those meetings? Evenings, during okay. those meetings... I want to say Azusa started around 1906. Yeah, Azusa started in 1906. I don't know how long it lasted. During those meetings, some people began to um, experience certain um, gifts of the Holy Spirit that are manifested in the New Testament, but had not been part of the ordinary experience of the Christian life in the century in some for in many circles in the centuries in which preceded that. So, among them was speaking in tongues, um, understanding tongues, receiving. Uh, prophetic words and interpreting prophetic words. All of those things were accompanied by the phenomenon, which we now refer to of, of being re of resting in the spirit. Although I think at that time was more frequently referred to as being slain in the spirit. People who would experience a kind of both explosive and peaceful experience of the presence of God and the love of God that would, in some cases, knock them off their rapture? feet. An ecstatic rapture? An experience of ecstatic rapture okay. that would, in a certain way, knock them off their feet. I see. People began praying in... Uh, people during Azusa began uh, having the sense of being called to um, intercessory prayer for one another, especially with along with the gifts of tongues. And so they began sort of... Um, part of these meetings began... Um, small groups who had received these gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially tongues or the understanding of tongues, praying over other okay, people. Time out. I don't know really at first hand what people mean when they say speaking in tongues. I, I was not prepared for this conversation and I feel like I was not prepared for this conversation. And so I feel like I'm, there are going to be people who feel like I'm doing it in injustice. But I, I, I okay, but I'm starting from a literal zero knowledge base here. So anything you can give me to help me understand would be useful. Okay, and, uh, and understand, I am not pulling faces here. I'm not being snarky at all. This is something. This is stuff about which I know absolutely nothing, and I know that there seems to be a lot of it about. And I would like to have a basic familiarity. With okay. what is meant by this stuff, because I don't know. I mean, I literally don't know. Like when someone's speaking in tongues, what I honestly think of is a sort of weird third-hand cultural stereotype of people just babbling gibberish, like my eighteen-month-old. Okay, so what happens? What happens? Sure, that that's not true. What happens in Acts chapter two? Uh, do they not all go running out into the street, announcing the gospel? Speaking all the languages of the people there in Jerusalem. Speaking all the languages of the people there in Jerusalem. Okay, so and it's some not people, unintelligible gibberish. It is. Well, some people are gifted with the ability to speak in languages which are sort of unknown to them in, in, at Pentecost. And some people are gifted with the ability to understand languages which are unknown to them. This happens at Pentecost. And some of the fathers of the church, Tertullian, Irenaeus, I think a few others, sort of write about the fact that Christians continue to be gifted with, especially after having received what we 
what they were not calling the sacrament of confirmation, but what we would talk about as the sacrament of confirmation, that some Christians would be gifted with the ability to speak and convey the gospel or to pray in languages which were not their own. This is a phenomenon of the early church, that some people would be have this capacity to speak in languages which were not their own, and some people would have the capacity to understand it. This periodically comes up um, in the lives of the saints or mystics who who uh, who talk about um, praying in uh, language which is not their own language or language which feels um, conveyed to them or feels to rise up from their prayer. And this is uh, a characteristic of what begins to happen at the Azusa Street Revival as well. But it's not as if it didn't exist, you know, as if the notion of this did not exist previously in Christian history. Sure. Okay. So people begin praying over each other, some of them who have this gift of praying in tongues, which are languages which are unintelligible to them. And I think there have been some studies of those languages, and some people are sort of talking in a way which is wholly unintelligible, but some people are talking in in verbal patterns which seem to resonate with languages which are unknown to them, but actual existing languages. That that was my question. Was we are talking about actual existing human languages? That well, there are linguists to... who study this who say, look, the the people who contemporary people who pray in tongues uh, are are speaking in such a way which which resemble the speech patterns of languages which are unknown to them, but which exist, which are known to exist. Okay. And there's more more like I think Congar writes about this, and some of the other council fathers and certainly their contemporary okay, I don't want this to get controversial let's not talk about Eve Conger <laughs> we're already down the road of controversy okay so um, Azusa begins to take on the characteristic of intercessory prayer and um, and also ex- prayer with expectation of healing um, all of that is effectively the birth of the modern Pentecostal movement in, in the United States okay um, and continues on for the next couple of decades um, but but also with it, the establishment of certain kinds of uh, uh, ecclesial communities, which are uh, sort of imbued with these experiences and uh, a culture builds up around them, uh, some of most of which is breaking off from the existing denominations of Christianity in the United States. OK, so what was the question? Because now I was going to start talking about Duquesne. And I, I asked you, what is a revival? <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, Azusa is probably the example par excellence of a revival, but there have been other movements, other moments in American Pentecostalism, and we can talk about this in a minute, American, the American Catholic experience, in which gifts of the Holy Spirit seem to manifest in that way. And um, as people pray, uh, there's one other point I should mention about this, as people pray um, in, in an intercessory way for one another in the context of these gifts, um, they begin to pray that people will receive these charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in the consequence of that, drawing uh, from references in Scripture, again in Acts 2 and things like this, they begin to um, pray for the notion of baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is a kind of uh, baptism in the Holy Spirit is a kind of non-sacramental, effective experience of being more deeply immersed in or more deeply aware of these charismatic gifts, which can be the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. This is the theology of the thing. Okay. So that's what a revival is. And, okay, so it seemed to me from what you were saying, and again, I'm asking you to address my ignorance. Like you were saying, okay, you've got Acts, you've got some of the early church fathers, Tertullian, guys like that, talking about these manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the apostolic church. But then you fast forwarded to 1900s, Los Angeles. Yeah, because some of this comes up at other points in in Christian history, but I'm not a Christian historian for goodness okay, sake. Okay, well, what I, I guess what I'm asking is, is this is this looking at the the gap, the time gap between those two reference points? Is this a distinctly modern American phenomenon? Great question. Yes and no. In its current manifestation, in its current in the current sort of cultural things which accompany it, and probably the, the ways in which it looks, yes. But there are mystics all throughout the history of the church who make reference to praying in glossolia, in, in, in tongues. There are saints and mystics. I mean, you know, anyone who has a sense of a prophetic, uh, of, of receiving a prophetic word would say that it's an ordinary part of the Christian life to have um, the gift of prophecy or the gift of knowledge and understanding or the gift of wisdom of understanding these things, right? So all of these things are, I think, very honestly, baked into traditional Christian mystical spirituality. Catholic mystical spirituality, though, yes, I think it's fair to say that they kind of manifest in a particularly new 
way or they're particularly they're synthesized and expressed in a particularly new way in in the American experience of Azusa and what comes after it. Okay. All right. What does the church say about all of this? Um, well, great question. Um, so to talk about what the church says about all this, I think we have to talk about how this is kind of uh, emerged in the church. Well, how has it emerged? Because you, you started me off with American Methodism in Los Angeles in the 1900s. So how do we get from that into the Catholic Church? Okay, great. And and, and I'm actually, I, I've been trying to score some interviews about this because I'd like to do some journalistic coverage of this. So I don't know if you know that I've been trying to reach out to people on some topics related to this to cover them. I or, do, because they're not. the topics that I didn't want oh, you to right, assign to me, to you, because right. I don't understand anything about all of this. And I haven't and I didn't done... want to... It would have taken me 10... But this is why I said you should cover it and not me, because it would have taken me... <laughs> can you imagine me calling up people who actually know about this stuff and saying, hang on, what does this mean? What are you talking about? You're like, it would have taken me six months to write a two-day story. I mean, I, you know... Yeah, okay. Uh, so... Um, in 19, I want to say 1967. So I'm reaching out to people who are much more connected to this than I am, and, and probably the, now they'll write in and be like, boy, you really mangled that on the podcast. I don't want to talk to you anymore, but this is, we're doing rough and dirty history here. Uh, in 1967, there was a retreat uh, at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh for Catholic students called the Duquesne Weekend or the Duquesne Experience or something like that, in which some Catholic students... And I am fuzzy on the details, which is why I'm trying to do the interviews. Like, I don't know the full history of it, but some Catholic students received these gifts of the Holy Spirit, which had been manifesting in the in Pentecostal and evangelical worlds in the in the decades preceding that. And, and some didn't, right? And some who went on this retreat sort of knew about it and some didn't, but some had this sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit in a new way. They experienced this thing of being slain in the Spirit. They experienced the gift of tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge, wisdom, these kinds of things, which felt which were effective experiences of the presence of God. And um, it wasn't like an explosion at Duquesne, but from there, where the thing really took off, some of those students went to Notre Dame and they began to pray with each other in an intercessory way, pray for healing, begin to experience um, some uh, healing, both kinds of spiritual healing, but I think also began to experience some physical healing, some things which were otherwise unexplained. Um, and well, hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We, is that not technically a miracle? Okay. A miracle is something which is uh, not but explained by the supernatural. Yes. Right, so then there's another category of things whereby, um, and the church has a way of assessing so-called medical miracles. She does, right? She does, yeah. right? In the process of canonization and for yeah. the purposes of canonization. Yeah. But there's another category of things whereby something might indeed be explicable by the natural, and at the same time, folks having you know entrusted it in prayer to God, it, it, it uh, a heal a healing is experienced, which is even if not otherwise entirely inexplicable, at least unlikely um, to be entirely explained by natural means or which seems to suggest some gift or grace of the supernatural, right? So, I mean, that's true. We pray for someone to get better. You you pray in an intercessory way for people to get better, I'm sure, or whatever. So I do. When you begin to sort of experience the regular frequency of people getting better, even in ways that can be explained naturally, you start to say, okay, well, maybe there's something here that's maybe perhaps we have the faith of a mustard seed and we're praying or God has given us a sort of the faith of a mustard seed and we're praying and with the expectation that things are going to happen. Right. And so, uh, this sort of took off at Notre Dame among some students there and then among some faculty there. And these things were accompanied by, um, you know, they started in the Methodist holiness movement with lots of hymns singing, but they were accompanied by, um, contemporary Christian musical singing. And in some cases for the, in, in the Catholic context, all of this was taking place in the presence of Eucharistic adoration and with the integration of um, Eucharistic processions and, 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 and benediction and, and holy hours and, and, and things which are, I think you would probably say, more hallmarks of the of, uh, uh, of traditional Catholic piety. Traditional Catholic piety, although I, I, I'm, I'm shying away from that because part of what these groups would suggest is that the things which they're talking about and experiencing are not entirely novel, but rather have been at various points in the life of the church, ordinary experiences of Christians that one would have. I, look, I, you don't need to sell me on the distinction no, between that. what is don't... consistently traditional in the church and what is still nevertheless rooted yeah. and present in the history of the church. Right. I, I just want to sort of make that distinction on, on their behalf, as it were. Uh, um, okay. All right. So it sort of gets into the mainstream through, if I'm understanding you correctly, colleges. Yeah, colleges. And from there, because Notre Dame, you know, as, as you know, is a place for students from all over the world to study, um, the, the Catholic charismatic renewal, which is what this is termed, begins to sort of spread in other directions. 
and, um, and and with different iterations. You you might have heard of things like covenant communities. Amy Comey Barrett, a secular politician, is involved in a covenant community. And I think, well, I, whoa, 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 whoa. A secular am, jurist. Yeah, I am not going to allow Fine. you to smear the entire judicial <laughs> system. Amy Comey Barrett, a secular jurist. They're all ju- just politicians. Uh, 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 Amy Comey Barrett, fair. a secular jurist. A, sec- a secular jurist is involved in the covenant community and others. So, um, so yeah, so from there sort of spreading – and, uh, and and really into a worldwide phenomenon, which the church um, has affirmed. So Pope Francis, but not just Pope Francis, John Paul II and uh, Benedict XVI, um, the church has had um, offices of the Roman Curia, which are um, meant to engage with and oversee, um, quote unquote, the charismatics. And, uh, and, and so there's a sort of ecclesial structure, which a couple of U.S. bishops are involved in, which sort of exercises oversight um, and pastoral sort of pastoral leadership for predominantly lay-led charismatic movements of various kinds in the church in the United States. Okay. Um, and it is because that this is a distinctly American articulation of all of this in its origin within the last hundred years. The, the roots are all, as I've understood it from you, American, both its primary root, which is in West Coast Methodism, and then it's transmission into sort of the Catholic bloodstream, as it were, through Duquesne and Notre Dame universities. This but is... having taken on the cultural elements of very many places in very unique ways uh, all around the world since, having been fully and wholly enculturated, as you can imagine, in different places. In okay, different you places. say that, but that's just as this explains to me, for example, why I have, I mean, the closest I've ever come to seeing evangelicals or charismatics or whatever they're called is my parish in London had a an evangelical group that would meet in the church once a week. And, you know, my pub is around the corner from the <laughs> church. So I would, I would be walking past the parish church every night, more or less. And you would see them um, and coming in and out. And they would always have a projector screen and a full drum kit and things like that. And I just always thought, this seems odd to me. How do you, how do you get to a point where you need like a, a, an eight piece drum set and a, and a projector screen for something that is, I thought all about spontaneity, but I can under, because also part of the reason I was sort of raising my eyebrows at this is in central London thinking this also looks a lot like American stuff to me. This, <laughs> this smells like America. Um, but to hear you say that that's, you know, that's sort of the cultural point of origin for this iteration of all this, that makes some sense. Okay, so is this what people mean by praise and worship? Praise and worship is a style of music which has become associated with this charismatic renewal or with this Pentecostal revival in the United States and globally. In the United States, it's expressed in the work of um, people like Jim Cowan or more contemporarily, Matt Marr. Um, I, I don't know who any of these people are. Matt Marr is a podcast listener. and um, Well, then he must be an exceptionally good person. <laughs> he is. And you've probably Hopefully seen... Hopefully possessed of a good sense of humor. <laughs> have you ever seen... Um, uh, I think he's a podcast listener. Have you ever seen uh, the video of Pope Francis at World Youth Day in Brazil nope. where, where it's adoration? Stop you right there. Nope. And I, the last the world, of, I love World Youth Day. I love World Youth Day. I went I to several World Youth Days. The last one I went to was Cologne. Between Cologne and Sydney, I got married, and you know that was me done. Same, World Youth same Day, story, actually. But World Youth Day is for the youth, and so I, you know, I, well, I think you're going to Portugal, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, there's a pretty well-known video in which Pope Francis is at the beach in Rio, and an American is playing the guitar. During Eucharistic Adoration, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Not even a note. Okay. Uh, Well, I mean, my rendition of it was not great. But um, praise and worship is the style of music which um, has its genesis probably in Methodist hymn singing and Pentecostal American Pentecostalism translated through more sort of megachurchy American evangelicalism and... Um, the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, not exclu- not now not limited exclusively to those things. There are plenty of people who sort of pick up or or have familiarity with praise and worship music who would not identify with those things, but that's sort of their genesis, to be sure. Um, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. 
I want to see you. Do you know that song? Because I want to no. call this episode Open the Eyes of Ed's Heart. That's why Oh, we're, no, we're calling this show It's a Revival. Nope. No, we're calling it Open the Eyes of Ed's Heart. No, we're... we're it's my... Whose desk? All right, fine. Nate's weird. There's no desk. <laughs> the desk is gone. They That's sold true. that desk. They packed who's, that desk off, sold it out the back door. Who's whatever? That whole office is gone, know. man. They, not yeah, only is your desk know. gone, that office is closed. They Everybody left. Everyone That's quit. True. It's gone. That's true. Um, okay, you can call this episode whatever you want, but we're going. the Great. outro music is going to be Johnny Cash. Is going to be Give Me That Old Time. No, version. actually, the outro music can't be Johnny Cash because, well, it can be, but then next week... Uh, do you remember that last weekend we were talking about um, you oh, I know and your baptism? Say. Here's the thing about the fabulous, fabulous podcast listener who sent in. It wasn't just one. So a number of podcast listeners have sent us uh, songs, country music songs, lyrical sets for country music songs based upon Ed's life of having been born in a snowstorm, baptized in his grandparents' house, no record thereof. And uh, and I'm going to give it another week because we've gotten a few and we've got one which was recorded musically and really wonderful and we're going to talk, we're going to listen to it. Uh, and, and all of that. Um, but if you listeners had been intending to write a country song for Ed's, I'll read them all next week and Ed can, we can comment on them and opine on them. But some of them, the ones that we've gotten have been really, really wonderful thus far. Haven't they? I'm not going to, I wasn't kidding. I think I said this on Twitter. I wasn't kidding. The, the listener who sent in lawman for the Lord. (laughs) I honestly like literal chills. I, it's this, I don't think I've ever felt that cool. In my entire <laughs> life than hearing my perfectly mundane life interpreted. And we're a comic book. That. I mean, like, just to let yeah. you know how much that we're a comic book. So if this made you feel cooler than being a comic book, that's really saying something. In fact, wait a minute. I I was just thinking, I, I was just about to say, man, I'd wear that on t-shirts. Like, wait a minute. I have a, I happen to have a merch site. With I'm going on the RT public site after this. And there's going to be a pillar t-shirt that says Lawman for the Lord. Because <laughs> I Someone suggested so to me much. that we should make a, a pillar T-shirt. So we recently, I think, in a newsletter this week, I was talking about I was talking about an interview that I did with Archbishop or with Cardinal Tom Collins, and I referred to him as a pillar reader because he is. But you know, to distinguish him from other members of the College of Cardinals who we refer to as pillar readers, I, I referred to him as. Uh, Pillar Reader, parentheses, in a good way, Cardinal Tom Collins. And someone suggested to me that they would wear a T-shirt that said Pillar Reader, parentheses, in a good way. So I, I think we should we'll, we'll update the T-shirt the lineup. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's yeah. true. Normally, a Pillar Reader is um, yeah, the, the accepted circumlocution <laughs> for has threatened yeah. to sue us. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. That's right. Um, so okay. that's, what I, that's what you wanted to know. I'm going to ask a final question. and And again, I want to stress that I genuinely don't know. I'm asking this in all innocence and, and you know, I, I, shoot me straight, okay? I, I trust your sincerity here. Okay. What's the deal with the closing of the eyes and the raising of the hand? What? Whenever you see charismatics going at it or, you know, the praise and worship stuff going on, people all have their eyes closed and they've got one hand in the air and they're kind of swaying. What's that all about? It's a receptive posture of prayer. Like that is it? I don't know. I do, it's itself. never. I, I've never done. I've never gone anywhere where people encourage me to close my eyes. I, you know, <laughs> at CUA when we were in grad school. Where, where were we at grad school? We were in grad school together. But like, I went to. I went to a daily mass in Caldwell Chapel once, and like one of the kids next to me in the pew tried to hold my hand during the Our Father, and I well, like, I'm not leapt out of my skin. That. Let's not go crazy. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, like, I have no, like, I, you say it's a receptive posture of prayer. Like, you know, it's like, I don't know. Is it? I did. Like, what is, like, does the hand up give you better reception? I don't know. I, <laughs> oh, my God. I really don't know. I have no personal experience of this whatsoever. This is totally foreign to me, and I'm asking genuinely as a good faith idiot in all of this. I don't know what its genesis is and its contemporary But it's ubiquitous. You will accept that. It's at least ubiquitous in the imagery that I've seen. And so that prompts the question. Is like if if you see pictures of like everyone doing it, it's like, okay, well what's going on? I don't understand what is that? Uh, it's a good question, Ed, and I said I said to you it's a receptive posture of prayer and I mean it, but I think I think you can agree that it is a biblical posture of prayer, right? Um, I, I don't know why. Moses I, maybe. raising his arms, Solomon spreading his hands towards heaven in in uh, the Book of Kings. Um, mention of the same thing from the Psalmist. I think in the Book of Ezra, Ezra spreading his hands out to the Lord. So that's why I say it's a receptive posture of prayer that I think is scriptural. Now, okay. you know, you know, I th- there are plenty of people who say, "Oh no, it's just a motive claptrap." But uh, no, I'm not I saying think, that. What, what I, I think again, it's I'm to say about that is like God gave us our emotions, and I think it's. I don't think it's wrong for our for our these emotions which God gave us to be part of our effective spiritual lives. 
um, which are rooted in the objective reality of the sacraments. But no, it, scripture. Again, you're being you defensive people, here, and I'm no, not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just saying. I think you see. I mean, actually, you know, like um, Psalm 95. You, you know, those guys are shouting and dancing and shaking and quaking and moving and you know what I mean. Like, um, all, well, and Saul all, at one point, as I recall, fell in with a group of ecstatics, and that was one of the ways that his um, right, exactly. And the Qumran came. community, you know, the Qumran community yes. spun. They did holy spinning, which is dervish, still has dervish stuff. Basically. Dervish stuff, yeah, exactly. Which still has existence in contemporary religious expression. So, movement is not an no. I mean, the, the, the disposition and, of uh, of orthodox uh, prayer is that it's you know that's why they they right. Rock and, and putting the, your hands in the air can be an express you know can no, be an expression. Physical. Of, we are corporal beings. Why that, do you? Why is it that if if you? Why is it that when your team uh, scores a goal, you put your hands up? Right. It's a sort of celebrate an expression of victory. You know, I'm a, a Cubs fan. I wouldn't know, but I know, but also a kind of solidarity there. I mean, why is it that when you're at a club, you might throw your hands in the air and wave them like you just don't care? Nope. 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 <laughs> nope. 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 Not going to the club. Not. Not done. <laughs> I don't That's even not, know what a club dancing is a nay nay for me. It is actually, but I mean, my point is like these things are, I think, connected to expressions of both like communal intention and communal communal. Um, engagement, some sort of solidarity, but also like this biblical notion of, of spreading one's hands to the Lord and these kinds of things okay. that we see in the Psalms and elsewhere. That's, that is extremely helpful. That's what I wanted to okay. I have more questions, but we've overrun by like 20 minutes. So Yeah, this is a bit of a long show, but if you have, I'll, I'll ask, answer. You choose the best one. But isn't that part I'll... of the, no, but isn't that part <laughs> also of like charismatic stuff is that it usually overruns by a long time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yes. All right, everybody. This has been uh, great. I have been uh, your Virgil, not even the intercontinental champion, but I hope a worthwhile Virgil. Um, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, Net and Judy Production. Our executive producer is the great Kate Oliveira, to whom we are so grateful. Uh, you are our listeners, to whom we are also so grateful. And if you think that what we're doing here is uh, worth supporting, first of all, thank you. And second of all, uh, you can go to PillarCatholic.com and subscribe, become a subscriber to the Pillar. Um, to help us continue to do the work that we do here on the podcast, but also in our work as reporters uh, and journalists at the Pillar Podcast, where it is my uh, honor to be the editor-in-chief and to have Ed as, as, uh, as one of our editors. Again, I think I said this, but <laughs> we'll see you next week. Stuart Hamlin. The Blackwood Brothers. It was good for me, good children. It's good.